There is a Jewish legend that in the beginning, God created ten portions of peace and love and joy and beauty. Then he poured out nine of those ten portions on Jerusalem. It is the most fascinating city on the earth. Even from a secular point of view, Jerusalem is intriguing. It's the crossroads between modern and ancient, east and west, Christian, Jewish, and Islam. Enter the old city of Jerusalem and you step back 2,000 years into time. And at the same time, you realize that Jerusalem is the future focal point of God's plan for the ages. A visit to Jerusalem is a back-to-the-future kind of experience. One day, Jesus will rule the universe from this city, the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 48 tells us, says of Jerusalem, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Jerusalem is a beautiful city. It is a delightful city. It is God's holy city. And yet, this city has a very bloody and a very brutal history. One historian counts as many as 27 different occasions when Jerusalem was conquered by foreign nations. Many of her defeats included carnage and destruction. It's been said that to walk the streets of the city of Jerusalem is to walk on top of the world's largest graveyard. You see, with privilege comes responsibility. And over and over, through the centuries, God judged this highly privileged city for its rebellion and for its failure to live up to its calling. Ironically, the name Jerusalem means city of peace. But over its 4,000-year history, the city's peaceful periods have been very few and far between. Tonight, we want to pick up here in the book of Isaiah in the midst of six woes or warnings to King Hezekiah's Jerusalem. The invader at the time was the Assyrian army. But Isaiah's prophecy goes far beyond the immediate threat. It speaks to the Jerusalem of the last days, the city surrounded by the nations of the world. Now remember, the book of Isaiah is like a chocolate vanilla swirl ice cream cone. Ever had a chocolate vanilla swirl ice cream? It is the snack choice of heaven. In each bite of chocolate vanilla swirl, you get a little bit of delicious chocolate and you get a little bit of absolutely delicious vanilla. You get a blend. And likewise in Isaiah, it seems that each spoonful tastes of both judgment and blessing. Isaiah is a blend of God's impending judgment and also of His future blessing. You might say Isaiah is a swirl of woes and wows. We begin tonight here in chapter 32. Begin with a bang. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule with justice. Now the king here is no surprise. His name is Jesus, our Lord Jesus. Revelation 19 verse 16 tells us that when Jesus returns to earth like a warrior of old, He'll come with his name tatted down his thigh. It reads, King of kings and Lord of lords. The king is expected. But what might surprise you are the princes who reign with Jesus. Believe it or not, it's you. 
And it's me. Luke chapter 19 tells the parable of three servants entrusted with their master's resources. Those who invested those resources wisely were rewarded. The master said to each one, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. (laughs) I don't even need ten cities. If the Lord lets me rule over a little town on the Hawaiian Islands, I'll be just fine. But our reward is to rule. You see, faithfulness now means authority in His kingdom. Revelation 5 verse 10 quotes the voices of the redeemed from all of the ages. You have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Well, verse 2 continues. A man will be as a hiding place from the wind and a cover from the tempest as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. Isaiah foresees a man. He is a refuge. He is a shelter. He is an oasis. He is a foundation. This would be a tall order for a mere man, unless that man is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Chapter 32 begins here informing us that the king is coming. And the eyes of those who see will not be dim. And the ears of those who hear will listen. Also the heart of the rash will understand knowledge. And the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. And this means hope for you and me. There's hope for the dim and the deaf and the impulsive and the tongue-tied. That we too can know the will of God. When my son Zach was a little guy, I took him shopping for a new baseball glove. He paused at the display rack. He bowed his little head and he prayed for a few seconds. When he raised his head, he pointed to a specific glove. I bought him the baseball glove. and As we were leaving the store, I'll never forget it, he started having second thoughts. He turned to me and he said, Dad, I'm not sure I chose the right glove. I don't really know how God speaks to you on baseball stuff. And this is our problem, isn't it? It's easy to discern God's will on moral matters. Just open up your Bible and read it. But who do I marry? Or what job do I take? Or which college do I attend? Or what business opportunity should I pursue? These all become more difficult decisions. And yet here's the encouragement from this verse. God promises to help our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Rather than allow us to act rashly or let our lips stammer trying to find an answer, we're told the ears of those who hear will listen. In other words, if you listen, God will see to it that you hear. You see, I believe that God wants us to know His will more than we do. Personally, I put a lot more confidence in God's ability to speak than I do in my ability to hear. Isaiah is saying to us that he'll get the message through if we trust him and if we really, really care to listen. Verse 5, the foolish person will no longer be called generous, nor the miser said to be bountiful. In other words, when Jesus returns, there'll be no more masks. Everyone will be known for who they really are, not who they purport to be. Whenever Jesus rules, hypocrisy vanishes. Truth reigns. Genuineness prevails. For the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity to practice ungodliness. 
to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and He will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Also, the schemes of the schemer are evil. He devises wicked plans to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaks justice. But a generous man devises generous things, and by generosity he shall stand. In other words, one day every heart will be exposed. There'll be no more pretense. Evil people will be revealed as evil. Generous people will be known for their generosity. There'll be no more acting the part. I love how John Wayne summed up his acting career. He said, no matter my character, I always play John Wayne. (laughs) Think about that. Whether he was a cowboy out west or whether he was a soldier fighting the battle of Iwo Jima, wherever he was, he always played John Wayne. And this should be true of every Christian. No matter my situation, no matter my circumstances, I'm a Christian first. That's the role that God has given me to play. Who am I in Christ? As the old man once said, if you ain't who you is, then you is who you ain't. May they not be said of any of, any of us that we is who we ain't. The true mark of Christianity is genuineness. Verse 9, rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. He has a word to the women. Now, usually women are more sensitive than men when it comes to spiritual matters. They're always like, like they want to go on retreats and have Bible studies. They all like to study God's Word. Women just love spiritual things, it seems, and have more of a spiritual sensitivity than us men. But in Isaiah's day, just the opposite was true. There were some hard-hearted women. Hugh Lewis once wrote a country song with a memorable lyric. He would sing, She's so cold, I'm turning blue. This could have been sung of the women in Jerusalem. We're told, in a year and some days, you will be troubled, you complacent women. For the vintage will fail, the gathering will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Be troubled, you complacent ones. Strip yourselves, make yourselves bare, and gird sackcloth on your waist. Lay aside your fashions and put on sackcloth. Sackcloth was a sign of remorse. And the women of Jerusalem, they needed to repent of their apathy. It's like the one young girl who said, the number one problem in our country today is apathy. And who cares? It's been stated of the church, 10% of the people are actively engaged in progressive change. 10% are actively engaged in resisting change. And the other 80% just sit there. Don't just sit there. Hey, really care. I wonder how many of us, women and men, have grown complacent toward the people around us who are dying and going to hell. Have we become apathetic toward our own worship or toward our own spiritual growth? It's time for us to wake up to the things that matter to God. He says, People shall mourn upon their breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. On the land of my people will come up thorns and briars, yes, on all of the happy homes in the joyous city. Because the palaces will be forsaken, the bustling city will be deserted. The forts and towers will become lairs 
forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. In other words, the Jewish cities around Jerusalem will become abandoned. They'll become the home of nomadic flocks and wild animals. Now remember, Revelation chapter 12 speaks of Daniel's 70th week. What the Bible refers to as the Great Tribulation. It's the final seven years before Jesus returns to earth. And at its midpoint, something happens in heaven. Satan gets booted from heaven. He's angry, and so he retaliates by attacking God's people Israel. The armies of the world flood into the holy city and surround Jerusalem. The Jews are forced to flee in mass southward toward the desert. Recall Isaiah 14 spoke of the Jews escaping to the rock city of Petra on the border between Moab and Edom. You see, a once thriving, bustling metropolis, Metro Jerusalem, will be abandoned, will become a ghost town. Verse 15, that is, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is counted as a harvest. And it's in those last days that God will do something miraculous with Israel. God will pour out His Holy Spirit on His people Israel. In Acts chapter 2, Peter makes reference to this outpouring. He quotes from Joel, who, by the way, was a prophet who prophesied, right? He was a contemporary of Isaiah. And Peter quotes this from Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. You see, Peter had connected the dots. What had happened there at Pentecost was the same outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Amos had predicted for the last days. At Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on the church. In the last days, He'll be poured out on Israel. It was a different timing. It was maybe a different people, but it was the same power. It was the same outpouring. One day, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon the Jews. Paul says in Romans 11 that in the end, all Israel will be saved. And then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. The work of righteousness will be peace and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. You know, there's no peace apart from righteousness. When what's right gets ignored, there is no peace, there is no quiet. And so thus the work of righteousness will be peace. My people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places, though hail comes down on the forest and the city is brought low in humiliation, blessed are you who sow beside all waters, who send out freely the feet of the ox and the donkey. God will protect His people even from the storm. Now Isaiah 33 describes God's judgment on the invaders of Jerusalem. Again, in Hezekiah's day, it was the Assyrian army. In the last days, it will be a coalition of nations led by the Antichrist. He says, Woe to you who plunder, though you have not been plundered, and you who deal treacherously, though they have not dealt treacherously with you. When you cease plundering, you will be plundered. When you make an end of dealing treacherously, they will deal treacherously with you. Isaiah here is speaking directly to the Assyrian general Sennacherib. Hezekiah, king of Judah, had tried to buy protection from the Assyrians 
And yet Sennacherib, he had taken their money and still attacked them. It was, as Isaiah says, treachery. And this too, in the last days, will be the Antichrist's M.O. He'll deal treacherously with Israel. He'll sign a covenant, you remember. That's what begins this last seven years. And then he'll violate its terms and he'll attack the Jews. Verse 2 is the cry of the Jews in those days. O Lord, be gracious to us. We have waited for you. Be their arm every morning. Our salvation also in the time of trouble. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, be my salvation in the time of trouble. At the noise of the tumult, the people shall flee. When you lift yourself up, the nation shall be scattered. And your plunder shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar. As the running to and fro of locusts, he shall run upon them. God will avenge his people. This applies to the end time Jews. It actually applies to Christians today. You know, in Romans 12, verse 19, God tells us, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Did you know that? Vengeance belongs to God. And God promises to dish dish out vengeance. Our job is to extend mercy. God's job is vengeance. Remember that next time you talk to your ex-wife. Remember that next time you talk to your unfair boss. Remember that vengeance belongs to God. Our job is to extend mercy. And then verse 5, The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is His treasure. Wisdom provides stability in your life and in my life. And the fear of the Lord is a great treasure in any era. And so surely their valiant ones shall cry outside. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveling man ceases. He has broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He regards no man. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon is like a wilderness. And Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Lebanon, Sharon, Bashan, Carmel were all the lush, fertile regions of the coastal and northern Israel. These are the areas that the plunderers invaded. Verse 10. Now I will rise, says the Lord. Now I will be exalted. Now I will lift myself up. The plunderers have invaded the land, and yet the plundering won't last forever. For God will arise, and He will stop this invasion. He says, You shall conceive chaff, you shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. And the people shall be like the burnings of lime, like thorns cut up. They shall be burned in the fire. Hear, you who are afar off, what I have done. And you who are near, acknowledge my might. God will stop the enemy in his tracks with his bad breath, he says. His breath is like a fire, like burning lime. He'll stop the wicked with the force of his word. He says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly. He who despises the gain of oppressions. 
who gestures with his hands refusing bribes, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from seeing evil. Those in Israel will fear the judgment of God, the same judgment that He sends to save them. Here they're thinking, man, we've played the hypocrite. Will we be judged too? Their only assurance is to walk righteously. Let me ask you, do you walk righteously? Do you do what's right in God's eyes? Not in your eyes, but in God's eyes. Do you speak truth? Do you avoid greed? Do you hate bribes? Do you steer your ears and eyes away from violence? These are the things that Isaiah says constitute walk righteously. Isaiah says, shutting my eyes to evil. Do we do that? Hey, does that mean that God cares about what I watch on television? What I see when I surf the internet? Absolutely it means that. It means God cares. Do we walk righteously? Verse 16 says of the end time Jews, He will dwell on high. His place of defense will be the fortress of rocks. Bread will be given him. His water will be sure. So where will Israel hide from these plunderers, from these invaders? Well, again, Isaiah 14 seems to identify this future refuge. Here, the fortress of rocks is probably a reference to the city of Petra. Verse 17, your eyes will see the king and his beauty. They will see the land that is very far off. And what a promise this is. Imagine seeing King Jesus in his beauty. That didn't happen during his first coming. During his first advent, we saw him in his humility, not in his glory, not in his beauty. But when he returns, we will see Jesus in his splendor and in his beauty and in his glory. And that means that after we see him, after we see his beauty, every sunset, every starry sky, every painting, every fireworks display will become boring to us after we have seen his beauty. Every beautiful sight we have ever seen or will see will suddenly pale in comparison to the glories and the beauties of our Lord Jesus. And Christians will get to see him in his glory before the Jews. For according to the New Testament, the church is raptured at least seven years prior to Jesus' coming here in beauty. Now verse 18 tells us, Your heart will meditate on terror. Where is the scribe? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will not see a fierce people, a people of obscure speech, beyond perception of a stammering tongue that you cannot understand. Isaiah is here speaking of these Assyrian invaders. Their language sounded like a stammering tongue in the ears of, of Jewish listeners. You know, their foreign, foreign army is speaking a foreign language but their invasion will be thwarted. He says, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed, nor will any of its cords be broken. Jerusalem will survive this Assyrian scourge. And in the last days, Jesus will come to the rescue of Jerusalem again. One day, the city will live up to its name the city of peace. Isaiah describes God's future blessing on Jerusalem. 
He says, but there the majestic Lord will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. In other words, the Lord is like a broad river, a water supply refreshing the city, and yet wide rivers invite enemy ships, majestic ships. But Jerusalem will be protected by her majestic Lord. Verse 22, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. What a day when the Lord becomes our lawgiver, our judge, and our king. Yahweh, the God of Israel, will stop these invaders. Again, notice these three names that are given to the one true God in verse 22. He's Israel's judge, lawgiver, and king. Now, I want you to think of America. Our government has three branches, does it not? There's the judicial branch, there's the legislative branch, and there's the executive branch. Where do you think our forefathers went to find this design? They went to the pages of Scripture. They realized that these are the three administrations of our Lord Jesus, that one day He'll fulfill for all the world. They knew that one day all three branches would be consolidated under the Lord Jesus. He would be our chief justice. He would be our law-making body. He would be our commander-in-chief. In the meantime, they also had the wisdom to know that these powers should be separated. That no man should occupy all three offices. Only Jesus could be trusted with all three offices and branches of power. But it's interesting that their design for government came from Scripture, even from the book of Isaiah. Now, whether or not America today is a Christian nation can be debated, but you need to know one thing. Without the Bible, without Christianity, there would be no United States as we know it today. That's for sure. So many of our principles of government have been taken from our Christian heritage and from Scripture. Now, Isaiah goes back to the ship metaphor that he mentioned earlier. Verse 23, he says, Your tackle is loosed. They could not strengthen their mast. They could not spread the sail. Then the prey of great plunder is divided. The lame take the prey. You know, the invaders, they've sailed in on their ships, metaphorically. But now they'll be unable to steer. God will defeat them. And He will heal the citizens of Jerusalem. And the inhabitant will not say, I am sick. The people who dwell in it will be forgiven their iniquity. Now Isaiah 34 begins. Come near, you nations. Notice that, you nations. To hear and heed, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come forth from it. Now there is a quote that I want to read to you tonight from the famous Bible commentators, Kiel and Delich. They write the following about chapters 34 and 35 of Isaiah. They say, We feel that Isaiah is carried away from the stage of history and is transported into the midst of the last things. He has broken away from his own time and the end of all things has become more and more his home. And here is where Isaiah becomes a seer. In other words, he sees 
into future things. I believe that chapter 34 focuses on the final battle. The battle that will end all battles. The battle of Armageddon. Chapter 35 then sees what comes afterwards. The kingdom age. And the glories that God brings as He restores the earth to a garden. Notice verse 2. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. Not just the Assyrians now, but all nations. And His fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Again, the fact that He doesn't just point out Assyria, but all all nations have now come against Jerusalem. This points us again to the last days. Not just Isaiah's time. And here, apparently, the end times will see a unification of all nations. Isn't this interesting? That in the last days, all nations will at least be able to gather together and come together, at least for the purposes of coming against Jerusalem. There'll be some sort of a unification, some sort of a globalization. Globalism will bring all nations of the earth together. You remember God divided the nations at the Tower of Babel. But in the end, Satan will rally the nations again in one final revolt under the sway of this man, the Antichrist. Of course, even today, trends are moving toward one world solutions. Global coalitions. A new world order is what we're headed for. National sovereignty is viewed as an impediment to progress by many. The world is getting smaller. We should work together, goes the mantra. This is the effect that builds up to the final revolt. Hey, you can visualize world peace if you'd like. But if this world's peace is going to really be a true peace, then it'll only happen after the one last final battle. Well, notice verse 3. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. The day is coming when the armies of the world will unite. And the chief factor that will bring them together is their hatred for the Jews. The Antichrist will invade Israel and come against Jerusalem. The armies of the world will stage their campaign in the valley of Jezreel, what's called today Armageddon, the valley just north of the mountain of Megiddo, this famous valley in northern Israel at the foot of Mount Carmel. It stretches as far as the eye can see. If you've been with me to Israel, you've, of course, been there. You remember it. You know, Napoleon made the comment that there was room there for all of the earth's armies, and that's exactly what Isaiah here predicts. You know, it's interesting. Think of the nations of the world today. What is the one thing all the nations of the world, except for maybe a couple, have in common? It's their opposition to Israel. It's their hatred of the Jews. It's not hard for us to see how we can get from where we are to where the Scripture tells us we one day will be. The armies of the earth will rally together and come against Israel and Jerusalem. When we think of this final battle, we often refer to it as the Battle of Armageddon. But in reality, it is the Battle of Jerusalem. Armageddon is just the staging ground. The spoils of this battle are further south. It's the holy city. In fact, the fighting spills over into the whole region, as far south as Basra or Edom. 
That's where the Jews at the end times will be hiding. At the rock fortress of Petra. Jumping ahead just a bit. Isaiah 63 foresees Jesus, the Messiah, after He's already returned from earth, after He's destroyed these invading armies. And He's coming up now from Edom. Listen to the words of Isaiah. Who is this who comes from Edom? This one who is glorious in His apparel, traveling in the greatness of His strength. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. And I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. This is a stunning picture of Jesus. Today we admire the Lord's mercy. But in that day, we'll behold His wrath. Jesus will come to earth to make war. He runs the Antichrist into the desert and He slaughters the soldiers until... His robes have been stained with their blood. The Lord who shed His blood to forgive mankind will shed the blood of those who rebel against Him. You see, the cross is the only beating Jesus Christ will ever take. When He returns, it won't be His blood splattered on His robe. It will be the blood of His enemies. Verse 3 describes it. The slain thrown out, stench rises, Mountains melt. They're mingled with blood. Oh my, this great tribulation, it will be a terrible time. Plague so intense, so widespread, men will hide in caves and holes from what John calls the wrath of the Lamb. I find that's such an interesting phrase. The wrath of the Lamb. Vance Havner once said, The day is coming when the most expensive piece of real estate will be a hole. Notice verse 4. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, and as fruit falling from a fig tree. Isaiah sees the day when nature goes nuts. Mother Nature will freak out. She'll have a severe case of PMS. She'll be off the chain. Comets and meteors and planets will fall from the sky like leaves falling from the trees on an autumn day. John also sees this upheaval. In Revelation 6, God is opening the title deed of the earth to take possession of what belongs to Him. And when He pops the sixth seal, it unleashes cosmic disturbances that rock the earth off its off its hinges. Understand the mind-bending language that Isaiah uses. This is a Jew writing 2,700 years ago. But it's as if he is privy to the latest theories in tensor calculus, particle physics, string theory, quantum mechanics. This is a Hebrew prophet named Isaiah writing here in verse 4. Not a German physicist named Einstein. And yet his insights are amazing. They parallel some of today's most modern theories. Isaiah was far ahead of his time. Realize man's last frontier isn't outer space. It's inner space. The fascination of today's cosmologist is the study of subatomic particles. Scientists have observed 
that when a particle travels very, very fast and approaches the speed of light, it behaves in strange, ridiculous ways. In fact, the search is on today for a set of laws that govern gluons and quarks and photons. These are these infinitesimally small particles, the very building blocks of the universe. One theory is that the universe is made up not of four dimensions, but actually of ten dimensions. Length, width, depth, time are dimensions that we can see. But science postulates other unknown dimensions that we can't see. The idea is that these invisible dimensions are hidden because they're so very small that they're rolled up under the edge of the universe. Only time and space are flat enough for us to see. The universe is actually curved or rolled up like a scroll. This is a hard concept for us to get our minds around, but it is the exact imagery that Isaiah uses in verse 4. Don't ask me to explain it any further. I'm already in over my head. But suffice it to say, the amazing ideas coming out of modern cosmology still haven't caught up to the truths that the Bible revealed 2,700 years ago. Well, God tells us in verse 5, For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and on the people of my curse for judgment. Again, the vocal point of God's judgment in these last days will be Edom or Basra. This is where the nations of the earth will attack the Jews. He says, The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild oxen shall come down with them, and the young bulls with the mighty bulls. Their land shall be soaked with blood, and their dust saturated with fatness. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Its streams shall be turned into pitch, and its dust into brimstone. Its land shall become burning pitch. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall ascend forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. No one shall pass through it forever and ever. Edom will become a place of utter destruction. Sounds like the aftermath here of a nuclear explosion. In other words, it's now off limits forever. He says, but the pelican and the porcupine shall possess it. Also the owl and the raven shall dwell in it. It will be given over to the wild animals, the beasts. And he shall stretch out over it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call its nobles to the kingdom, but none shall be there. And all its princes shall be nothing. And thorns shall come up in its palaces, nettles and brambles in its fortresses. It shall be a habitation of jackals, a courtyard for ostriches. The wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the jackals, and the wild goat shall bleat to its companion. Also the night creature shall rest there, and find for herself a place of rest. There the arrow snake shall make her nest, and lay eggs and hatch, and gather them under her shadow. There also shall the hawks be gathered, every one with her mate. Search from the book of the Lord and read. Not one of these shall fail, not one shall lack her mate, for my mouth has commanded it, and His Spirit has gathered them. 
He has cast a lot for them, and his hand has divided among them with a measuring line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. After this final judgment, in the kingdom age that follows, the land of Edom apparently will be given over to these wild beasts. Now, Isaiah 35 is another preview of coming attractions. In fact, it's a foretaste of what we'll study in depth in chapters 40 to 66. In these last 27 chapters of Isaiah, his tone changes dramatically. We've been reading of judgment after judgment after judgment. But the dark night of earth's history will give way to a millennial morning. Jesus will come again to judge the wicked and deliver Israel, but that's not all. He will come to remain and rule and reconstruct this fallen planet. The earth will be rejuvenated. Everything that sin has defiled will be cleansed and restored. Isn't that wonderful? Everything sin has touched will one day be restored and reclaimed. And chapter 35 begins Isaiah's description. He says, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Today's environmentalists warn that every year the forests are receding. The deserts are expanding their boundaries. The wilderness is gobbling up the trees and the farmland. It's an ongoing man-made disaster. But in the age to come, in the age when Jesus reigns, He'll solve the earth's ecological problems. We're told the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. Of course, that doesn't mean that we should wait on Jesus to responsibly oversee His creation. Remember, in the beginning, we were given dominion over nature. That means that we are responsible to steward God's creation in responsible ways. Our dominion over nature necessitates good stewardship. And yet the ultimate answers will be provided by Jesus. When He returns, deserts will bloom again. Earth is restored to its original garden paradise. In a sense, we'll all find ourselves home again in the Garden of Eden when Jesus reigns. And then verse 2, The world shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Carmel and Sharon are regions, again, in the northwest of Israel, known for their beauty. And when Jesus returns, all the earth will be like the garden of paradise. It will cause everyone to be in awe of the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. And then he says in verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, Be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. When Jesus is on the throne, it will inspire courage and strength. But isn't this also true right now? Weak hands and wobbling knees both become strong when we see that by faith Jesus is in control of our lives. This is why Isaiah's own vision of God back in chapter 6 was so strategic. You remember he saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of His glory filled the temple. And immediately, he became undone, he said. He was dressed down by God's holiness. 
undone by sin that he didn't even know existed in his heart. The end result was, here am I, Lord, send me. The Lord touched him with a hot coal and purified his heart so that he could see the needs around him. And he said, here am I, Lord, send me. It's always the realization that God is high and lifted up that causes us to get down to business with God. Isaiah's whole life was changed when he saw God sitting on the throne. And the same happens to us when Jesus begins to reign in our lives. And when Jesus establishes his future kingdom, amazing miracles will occur. You think Jesus performed miracles at his first coming? You ain't seen nothing yet. We're told, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. <laughs> wow, that's a good promise for me. One day I'll sing like the angels, my friends. What a miracle that'll be. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. I mean, not only will lame legs leap like a deer, but wasteland will become farmland. And then he says, a highway shall be there, and a road, and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. For the last 2,000 years, Jews have been scattered all over the earth. We call it the diaspora or the dispersion. Only recently have Jews begun to return to the promised land, to Israel. But there is one more diaspora awaiting the Jewish people. When the Antichrist invades Israel, Jews will flee to the four corners of the globe. This is why when Jesus defeats the Antichrist, the first project of his new administration will be a highway to bring the Jews back home. Jesus will have his own DOT. The Department of Transportation. And his first contract will be the Highway of Holiness. I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't get labeled Highway 777. The dispersed Jews will use it to return home to Jerusalem. And Isaiah describes this highway. He says, no lion shall be there. Nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there. I guess that would also include speed traps and policemen with radar guns. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. This road will hold no dangers, only everlasting joy. Those who travel this road It'll be like being on a party bus. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Everybody who travels on this highway will be under the influence. They'll be driving under the influence. They'll be under the influence of God's Spirit, His ransom and His redemption. And not only will the Jews use this road to journey to Jerusalem, but all the nations will come up to Jerusalem. We know this from Zechariah 14, verse 16. There we're told, Everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. 
In other words, we'll all take tours of Jerusalem. We'll go up annually and we'll worship King Jesus. And finally, that city that has suffered so long and so severely will truly be called the city of peace. And there we have Isaiah 32 through 35.